We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Wajak people of Perth region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past and present. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side and the truth. Come on girls, let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Don't look at a boy jumping there. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. Swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Wook Wook. G'day, welcome to The Last New Wave. I'm Andrew Pierce, and this is the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, I'm joined by the writer and director of a little Australian film called Red Christmas, which is a pretty unique little Australian film because it's a horror film, and it's a horror film that's set at Christmas time. And, you know, if you have listened to a previous episode on The Proposition, uh, you'll know that, you know, hey, we don't really do that many Christmas films. Um, so it's fantastic to see that a horror film that's set at Christmas exists. It's out currently on Umbrella Entertainment, and as you hear in the interview, it's also getting a bit of a release in America and will be hitting Netflix in America later on this year. I really enjoyed this conversation with Craig. You know, we, we talk about a lot. We talk about the, the film Red Christmas, of course, and then we also talk about uh, his history uh, directing the superb TV series uh, Double the Fist, as well as Black Comedy, and what goes into creating comedy TV shows in Australia. We also talk about his extensive VHS collection, which is just phenomenal. It's, it sounds really, really impressive. Um, look, I, you know, I won't keep on going too much longer because, uh, hey, this is a really fantastic uh, conversation. So pour yourself a glass of eggnog um, with a maraschino cherry or something like that, uh, something red at least, and sit down and enjoy this conversation with myself and Craig. First of all, let's have a quick listen to the trailer. This year, I thought before we opened presents, it would be nice if we went around and said what we're grateful for. Perhaps Peter could lead us in a present. A goddamn church. And here I thought this would be so easy. I know how hard it can be starting a family late in life. Mm. You're on the clock, buddy.
So I'm talking to Craig Anderson, who's the director of a film that's out through Umbrella Entertainment. And uh, if you're internationally, it's uh, I'm, I think it's available overseas as well, uh, which is Red Christmas, a new horror film uh, which touches on a bunch of really interesting, uh, sensitive buttons uh, in society at the moment. So welcome. Thanks for joining me to discuss your film. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Cheers. So tell us a little bit about the film itself. I know I know what it's about, but uh, if you can tell the listeners just a little bit about the film and also how you came up with the idea for it too. <laughs> sure. Well, the brief answer, the, I, I actually used two synopsises, one that's going to be safe and one that's going to start trouble. Um, the safe <laughs> one is a, a you know, a 60-year-old matriarch has her, family, her grown-up family over on Christmas Day and uh, then a deformed stranger arrives and causes trouble. You know, something similar to that. And then the other version, which is the one that is, uh, like, starts trouble, is a, a person who survives their own abortion comes home and meets his family on Christmas Day. <laughs> and that is, uh, that is the idea behind it. It's kind of, I came up with it when I was thinking of the stupidest ideas I could for a movie, because I was kind of thinking that anyone can make a movie nowadays, so maybe we need extreme ideas or crazy ideas and I thought well that's a pretty crazy idea and it sort of fits the slasher horror film genre and um I just sort of carried it through to its logical conclusion of the you know some sort of weird underdog story and then I read the draft I'd written and realized oh that's a bit not you know on the nose so to speak uh, as a political statement (laughs) because it looks very much like a pro-life film and then I um or an anti-abortion film, I should say. And so then I, I did a, a different draft, and I'd spoken to a lot of, uh, spoken to a midwife, and I'd, I'd read a lot and watched tons of films and documentaries about reproductive rights and was fascinated with all the, the many different arguments on both sides of the debate. And that's when I wrote a new draft, which kind of raises questions more so than makes you pick a side. Uh, but it's interesting, though, because it just had a release in America. Uh, through artsploitation films over there, and that I've been doing a lot of press in the states. And it, no matter what, if you <laughs> release this type of film in America, that's the one thing everybody wants to talk about. So, and it's and it's interesting too to see what side a reviewer is on because they'll start asking questions, assuming something. And it's great because I've had both sides. You know, I've had people go, "Why are you doing this? Uh, this is what we think it is. It's a horrible film about." Um, <laughs> about a horrible family who went through with an abortion. You go, oh, hang on, am I talking to a Christian group now? <laughs> Some sort of, you know, southern states uh, newspaper that's trying to start trouble. And then other times you're talking to very liberal, forward-thinking people who go, you know, healthcare is a problem and you know, why have you made this film that looks like it's, it could scare people into not having an abortion? So it's very interesting as to... Uh, what side people are on and, and how they receive the film. I, I find it really interesting that, you know, for films that, that talk about these kinds of subjects and stuff like that, especially in, you know, the horror genre, um, it's often difficult to straddle that line of being, you know, not taking a side and stuff like that. And I think you do a good job of it. And I, <laughs> I found that really, um, really interesting. And as you're saying, you know, you've get, you get two different sides of people saying... <laughs> taking two different uh, opinions from the film, which is, I imagine that's kind of what you want as a filmmaker. Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, d- I definitely didn't want to make a film that made, um, that kind of, you know, would make women or anyone feel bad about having an abortion. That was like, that would be a horrible thing. So I, I 
worked really hard to make the main character fight hard for that point of view. But at the same time, I had to follow through with the the um, the, he, the antagonist's journey, which is, well, this dude has survived an abortion, has been raised by the guy who blew up the clinic and um, and then has been raising it, who's a massive, you know, right-wing conservative nut who's teaching this thing to, uh, this human to hate everyone and to believe in religious dogma. So based on that guy's story, he's had a rough life. And so when the two of them meet and misunderstand each other, everything goes bad. So it, it, I, I would also direct both the... The, the the main characters who perform the the aborted guy and the the mother of the film to uh, uh, objectively I followed both of their points of view and and said you know you're in the right and you should feel correct about what what you're doing throughout the film and you're not the evil person that was a very interesting way to to do it although the, the bad guy does kill lots of people so in a way he's kind of just a jerk. <laughs> well, in in some regards, they're, they're they're heroes in their own stories and stuff like that. So you you know, if you look at it from his perspective, you can you can understand, even though you're a bit like, all right, maybe you should probably shouldn't have uh, killed so many different people. But the, <laughs> yeah, these things happen, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so you've got D. Wallace in this film, who's you know, for for people who love genre films or or really just films in general, um, they'll know that she's a she's a great actress. Um, how did you go about casting her in this role? Well, it was kind of an idea um, that I'd always have a woman because it was I wanted to run the main character being in her sixties and having a family and having gone through that whole life thing of growing up having a family now looking forward to retirement. So it's kind of the reverse of what you normally see in a slasher film. I was interested in not showing a teenage girl who survives based on her wits but rather seeing her at the other end of her her life um having survived all of life by just being smart and now having to face the exact same problem that you know a 19 year old jamie lee curtis would face in halloween for instance so i'd written this role and it also was because i'd love horror movies and i especially love the slasher genre and stuff from the 70s and 80s and i always thought it would be fantastic to have a woman who was in those movies performing again the same like a cyclical narrative almost having to go head to head with the same type of villain and evilness and you know dilemma that they went through as a teenager and seeing how they cope uh, when they they're a grandmother and so i contacted a whole bunch of women who were in those movies and they were all very responsive i was talking to uh, a whole bunch of them and they were great uh and then i got I got a little nervous when I realized, hang on, some of these women are famous and do conventions, but they're not necessarily known as great actors. And someone, a writer from Melbourne called Lee Gambin, who's also like a critic and stuff, he reminded me, well, why are you talking to Dee Wallace? And now he said, go and watch Cujo again, and you'll see that she's the best actor. You know, she's a fantastic actor. And it's true, she's such a, an awesome, fastidious actor and really good. So I contacted Dee through him and got got the script to her and she read it and she loved it which was fantastic and she had like one or two notes which were really small and simple notes and I was happy to take them on and that's it from there on in she was involved and came out to Sydney to, Sydney to shoot it yeah and she's she's fantastic and you know I, I love her in Cujo I think she's fantastic in that film and and you know she is an actress who uh, you know, I grew up watching her her roles in different films and stuff like that, and she always mm-hmm. throws herself completely into the film, and she does that here as well, and does a great job. So it's you know it's fantastic that you've yeah. gotten somebody 
like this in in your film here it's it's just brilliant to see oh it's good you know women at that age they only end up playing grandmothers or professors or just tiny little roles you know and never never the main character having to you know kick ass so it was awesome to be able to give her that and she said to me you know i want to see if i can still hold a movie because she's probably not been the main character in a film for many years for decades mm. so she really wanted to come out and, and try that out and just having her on set and and helping out constantly i made her a producer i asked could you be a producer as well and take on some producer credit uh, purely because she has so much information because she's worked with everyone who I, who I kind of like you know Wes Craven and Spielberg and uh, Peter Jackson and even Blake Blake when she was in 10 with um oh, yeah, Moore. yeah. <laughs> just worked with everyone and so you'll be directing a scene and she'll go well what happened to this movie with this director and you go oh man this, um, this is mind-blowing you know just having access to all the people she's worked with even Joe Dante who I love who did Gremlins but worked with her on on um what did he work on with her he, she's worked with him as well so she just has access to so many points of view and and experiences that she was able to bring up on set and make things awesome yeah and look it works it works so well uh, in that regard, I'm really curious as well, because this is your sort of feature debut in, in some regards, but you've been working for a very long time, uh, you know, in in a lot of different areas, you know, going way mm-hmm. back to Double the Fist and stuff like that, which is comedy, and it's great yeah. comedy. It's biting comedy. How do you make yeah. the transition? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I always wanted to know. Um, when I was a kid, I, I loved both horror movies and comedy shows my two favorite things and growing up in australia we entered trop test when i was in 1999 and did well at that and then sort of had access to television not that you know it was necessarily booming it wasn't like we had the tv of the 80s and 90s the comedies we were making then there was only a few on but there was enough to still go oh maybe i can get it you know get in and do that and so i was lucky i got in and started and we made double the fist in early 2000s me and a bunch of friends and ever since then it was just I've worked in TV and various jobs, review with Miles Barlow and Elegant Gentlemen's, and sometimes I'm an actor and sometimes I produce or direct. And then I got to do black comedy recently, which was excellent. Uh, when they needed a, a a second director to come in and help out, I got to do that for season one and had a lot of fun. And I've just always been around, mostly ABC, mostly because that's who ABC and SBS are the only people that still make comedy, apart from a couple of commercial shows every now and then. So it's been basically my career has been well what can i do and i'm sort of funny and i understand some jokes and that's what i've been doing but then i always wanted to do a horror film and just decided to bite the bullet and look into how to make a horror movie not that i looked in too well (laughs) i just sort of wrote it and then shot it and then went now what do i do with it and then i spent a year trying to work out what what are you supposed to do when you've made a movie which was very confusing because when you make a tv show a tv station has told you to make it and have commissioned it and then it's going to go on air and pretty much when you finish doing you know the grade and the sound mix you can relax because now it's the tv channel's problem they have to get out there and promote it and put it on and work out what to do with it but when you make a movie (laughs) with no goal you just sort of go okay now i've got this product how do i make money of it if i do make money of it it's a little terrifying oh i can imagine um so with Mm. with the tv work with abc and stuff like that is there a certain level of freedom uh, that you get with something like the ABC where you're allowed to kind of push the boundaries of comedy in, in some regard? So 
specifically with Double the Fist and Black Comedy, uh, which I think are two mm. great shows. And, you know, they, I, I couldn't see, you know, no offense to Channel 9, 10 or 7, but I could never see them putting on <laughs> something like that. So what kind of freedom yeah. do you have there? <laughs> well, you know, ABC and SBS, we're lucky that they exist because they, they are, you know, government funded. So they don't necessarily have to answer the ratings and they're meant to represent a lot of different points of view. So something like Double the Fist, the trade-off for that was that we did it for no money, that the the Fist team, who were also the guys who made everything, we just sort of did it really cheaply, spent months doing the special effects and just doing everything ourselves. And then ABC didn't care that we handed it in and they played it late at night. And so that's how they got in the back door almost. And we were just lucky to have an awesome EP at the time who was very supportive of us and said, look, you guys are doing stuff that's funny and crazy, but uh, if it's not costing as much, you just do it and we'll put it on there. So that was awesome. And then with Black Comedy, that was awesome because a woman named Sally Riley at ABC, who was head of Indigenous, sort of got a, gave a, what would you call it, a free card, um, lifted the rules because it was the first Indigenous comedy show. She just said to all the writers and all of the Indigenous folk on it, and I'm not Indigenous, I'm I'm a white ring-in that came in at the last minute to help direct all the comedy, but it was obviously tons of fun. But they were just allowed to do whatever they want. It was like, you guys should should offend, you know, why not? Because you've not had a voice for so long, come out and come out hard, and that's our that's our selling point of the show. So they were lucky they were given permission to go absolutely crazy and, you know, to do whatever they want. And they took it and I got to direct it and that was awesome fun. Yeah, and it works so well. And definitely, look, if anybody hasn't seen these shows, uh, you know, I highly recommend seeing them out because they, I don't know, they're, they're stuff that, certainly that I grew up on, Double the Fist, uh, you know, a friend of mine, we absolutely loved the show. And even though it was only a few episodes, we, we wore that DVD thin, basically, re-watching it. That's awesome. It's great uh, stuff. <laughs> I'm all, thanks. Cheers. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, we that we were really at a lucky situation. Although I must admit, kids today could do that on YouTube. You know what I mean? We didn't have the internet then. But if you wanted to, it'd go absolutely nuts. Because I think our first three episodes were made for five grand and that was just went towards props but i think you know if you saved your money you could do 90 minutes of youtube you don't even need to do 90 minutes now you could just do a couple of minutes like that all of this it would you know people would talk about it and you'd be able to share it so it's all about ideas and going hard and yeah in relation to the commercial networks ever doing anything like that their dilemma is that they offer they have to answer to what do they call them ceos and shareholders yeah. and stuff and they can't take a risk because a comedy show, when they do it properly, not like Double the Fist, but when they spend money on it, can cost you one or two million dollars. And if that fails, there's a lot of trouble out of that. Whereas if you could buy a show that works like Modern Family for 10% of that cost and put that on there and, and no one's going to get fired because even if it doesn't, if it bombs in this country, they can hold up a bunch of paperwork that says, yeah, but it's a number one show in America. Look at all the stats. How were we to know it wasn't going to hit here? But you make an original comedy show on one of the commercial channels and it fails, that's it. You know, people are in trouble and shareholders are angry. So there's a lot more pressure for comedy. Well, definitely. And and in that regard, coming back to Red Christmas in a way, there is a, a lot of pressure in Australia for horror films too. Uh, you know, I'm a huge mm. horror film fan and and what always bothers me is that Australian audiences aren't that receptive to Australian horror films. So, you know, they'll go and see It or The Conjuring and stuff like that and they may be good films, but it's like, well, 
Killing Ground's right there, people. Go and watch that. You know, that's a good film. And, <laughs> and your film's right <laughs> there. So in that regard, what kind of – how did you tackle the the concept of doing a horror film? Was it the, the fact that it's easy to make for a, a cheap budget or uh, something you were just really interested in doing? Yeah, it's, it's, it was pretty much just an interest. And my idea always was the international market um, in that – I, I collect a lot of VHS tapes and I have a warehouse full of them and I will just watch movies all the time. And I would be happy if my movie could just sit on the shelf with all the other VHS and sit in the genre for horror. So I didn't really approach it with any of the Australianness or the idea that it had to have Australiana in it. And I also didn't go through any funding bodies, which was very liberating um, because it meant that I didn't have to fit any of the uh, what would you call them? The containers they want to put you in or tick their boxes. or You know, in Australia, we make really good, well-funded, high-quality dramas. But my horror film is not a high-quality drama. It's a, it's a genre film. So I knew that there was no point attempting to even, you know, go for that money. So, which was excellent in a way. It was very liberating, but it meant I had to borrow money from family and friends and then slowly paying it off. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, I, I think my goal was just to make a horror film and to get it out there and not even look at the Australian market as the place where I'd sell it and and rely on for my return. I think that's kind of... I found like a film like Wormwood, which features awesome comedy and horror and Australiana, I don't... You know, I think, man, that's a film that should have really got bigger audiences. It did well um, in, in the few independent cinemas it was in, theatrically, but I just think that is a film that even if that film doesn't do well, what the hell am I trying to do? You know, why would I expect Red Christmas, which has got no Australiana or no connection to awesome films like Band Max and stuff? Why would my film have anything going on like that? So I kind of just left it open to once I make this, I'll take it into the, the big world and see if the big world has a place for it. And I got lucky that it did. Well, definitely. And, you know, I think that's the thing is that, you know, certainly American audiences and we're at the beginning of uh, October at the moment. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of people do the Shocktober uh, horror movie a day kind of thing for October and stuff like that. And they just love horror films. They, they lap it up and, and you know, they've, they've already seen all the Halloweens and Friday the 13th and all that kind of stuff. So something new and refreshing like Red Christmas is, is right down their alleyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, the horror fans are really loyal and very interested in people that they love and that they've been watching for years being in a new movie. So having D in it was, has been fantastic for helping to get publicity and to talk about it. And also, being a Christmas film, horror people love, you know, obviously October is their big month, but then the rest of the year they're looking for excuses. You know, like even on 4th of July, they'll post excellent posters and video covers of... Um, the that was that ridiculous there's a fourth of july horror film and then there's a <laughs> april fool's day horror film and then there's a easter bunny killing people and then there's a ton of horror christmas stuff so well, i'm looking to fit into that category to try and make sales and that's what the u.s distributor has done as well this they're, they're selling it now through all october november and it's in cinemas for the last five weeks um, leading into halloween but i think that what they've done is also sold it to netflix for christmas Great. So um, Netflix will be putting on the US Netflix as a Christmas film, which will be uh, very fun and hopefully very controversial <laughs> uh, when that happens. And I'll be my inbox will go crazy with people who are angry, at me ruining their Christmas. 
Well, you, you've got your, uh, you know, your arguments uh, as to why you've made the film all set aside, so you can just essentially copy and paste and say, look, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, well, that's, I'm so worried. It's like 60 million homes, and E.T., which Dee Wallace is in, she's the mum in E.T., is currently on the U.S. Netflix. So when you, people are watching Netflix around Christmas time, <laughs> it's going to come up with a suggested, you know, because you watch E.T., we recommend Christmas. <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to cop it. Well, so, yeah, that'll be an interesting time. The, the positive thing is that if it if it causes, you know, people to be upset or anything like that, then at least they're talking about the film and they're remembering it and, yep. and saying, hey, this film pissed me off something chronic, but, you know, <laughs> because of X, Y, and Z. And then somebody else will be like, oh, that sounds like something I'm interested in. I'll seek it out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, I always thought... Controversy is a good thing to uh, for marketing tool. Yeah. <laughs> like, look at the human centipede. Apparently, although talking to that guy who made it, said something along the lines of, "Everybody talks about it, nobody watches it." Yeah. <laughs> but you know, everyone loves the idea behind it, but no one needs to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- this Still, is certainly you know. a, a little bit easier than uh, than than the human centipede. I, I think at least. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so I'm glad. Um. In that regard as well, one of the other things, which because this is uh, we're recording this for an Australian film podcast and we talk about Australian cinema and stuff like that. And last year when I was uh, coming around to Christmas, I was looking for Australian Christmas films, and surprisingly, we don't do that many. Uh, and I ended up having to discuss the proposition because I was like, "Well, that happens at Christmas." <laughs> so I was like, "Fantastic, it worked." Yep. <laughs> Yeah, um, sure, absolutely. So, was that like a was Christmas always the, the the time of year that you wanted to to set this story? Well, I, I, it's it's primarily because I do love Christmas films. Um, Die Hard being my favourite one, and Gremlins as well as another big one. But there's a there's a horror film from 1974 called Black Christmas, yes. which is what I've sort of nodded to as my my title. And the, the good thing about Black Christmas is that it features. Because even though horror pretends it deals with taboo subjects, it kind of deals with acceptable taboo subjects like killing women and so on, as opposed to, you know, actual taboo stuff like incest or pedophilia or, you know, racism or, or, you know, sexism. Like that hardly ever pops up in horror movies. So I thought, well, abortion is an excellent topic that makes people talk and is actually taboo, you know, Mm. to talk about. And uh, Black Christmas is one of the only horror films that deals with it, and it's it, it's done because, and that was kind of the first slasher film. It's set at Christmas. There's a woman who wants to get an abortion. She tells her boyfriend, you know, they're at dorm and college, college dorm, and she tells him, and he goes nuts. And then you're not sure for the rest of the film if he's the one who's killing people or if it's the strange guy in the attic. And you know, like all horror films, it's kind of a metaphor and an and allegory for. Well, the idea of that abortion to that man and his misogyny is what's killing everything. And so that's kind of what I wanted to name Red Christmas after. But in regards to Australian films uh, being set at Christmas, I have maybe 400 Australian VHS tapes, and I found one when Dee was coming over, Dee Wallace, and it's the only time she's come over to this country, and it's called something like Blue Moon Christmas or or Bush Tucker Christmas, like a ridiculous Australian film directed by George Miller, not the Mad Max George Miller, but the other Australian director called George Miller. And um, it's a very quaint turn of the you know century, 1890 or something, 
sending out backing and Dee Wallace is randomly in this movie in Australia and that's the other time she came out in, back in 1986 or something wow <laughs> that's crazy yeah it's, it was so strange yeah yeah I, I I think I know the film that you're talking about but it's um yeah they're like I don't know we just don't do very many often the other one that I was thinking of was Crackers as well which is you know it's a family oh, yes, comedy of yeah yeah Crackers that's a great one yeah oh, and there's one from the late 60s I think it's Christmas with Olivia Newton-John and Babyface John Burgess. Oh, and yeah. it's, um, yeah, and it's kind of a musical and it's about an hour long that I've got on tape somewhere. Wow. So I forget what that's called. Mm. Your history then with collecting uh, videos and, and all this kind of stuff and, and movies from all over, where did that start then? Like, <laughs> what, what encouraged you to do this? <laughs> well, it started before Devil the Fist where... Um, I was at college at uni and uh, at Western Sydney, and I remember a video store when DVDs were new, the, to, like 2000, uh, had a whole bunch of VHS out. And I remember there's some Woody Allen ones there, and I was like, oh, I haven't seen those. They'd be interesting. And they cost the same to buy them as it does to rent. So I started grabbing them, and then being a comedian, there were stupid things like Get the Terrorist. And I was like, well, that's not a film I'd ever rent, but I definitely think the cover is hilarious. And I started collecting these movies because I thought they were funny. And it kind of just kept escalating as I saw them in op shops and went, how to cut your family's hair? Yes, please. And, you know, I'd be buying stupid videos that I thought were fun. And then after about 10 years, I had about 6,000. And I was like, hang on, I'm kind of doing something here that's not just a joke. (laughs) Some of these movies aren't going to come out on DVD and people are just throwing them away. And so I just sort of continued but with the goal of collecting anything that probably wasn't going to come out on DVD. And now I've ended up with 10,000 tapes and I just sort of, I think I did a, I, I went through this, I keep them in a video store genre, I lay them out like a genre uh, through their genres and I went through the thriller section recently and found out which ones can exist digitally currently and which ones don't. And it was interesting, there was about about 50-50, some that you can get digitally and then 50% of them, which is, you know, like 300 films in that genre, they don't exist digitally at all. You can't have them anywhere, and it kind of freaks me out. And so I always digitize them when I find out that you can't get it anywhere digitally. Just because it's, I wonder who's keeping an eye on them. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm more like a mad fan than an actual archivist. I'm not very, you know, because VHS is VHS. But there are awesome, there's some really interesting films. Like there's a movie called Belinda, and it, it was renamed Midnight Dancer in America. I think that was 1986 or 88, and it was shot in Sydney, and it's set during the 60s of Sydney, and it's about a young woman who goes off to the King Cross to do dancing, to become a ballerina, but she ends up being a, you know, a burlesque performer. And it's just an interesting film, and I remember looking it up and going, oh, that production company that made it existed for six months, and the director is now a school teacher, and... I don't know if anyone has a copy of this. You definitely can't get that on DVD or digitally anywhere. So I just remember thinking, man, even some Australian films need to be kept on VHS. I'm sure possibly the film and sound I can't have it, but I decided, well, I'm going to keep hanging on to them and digitizing them as well, like a psychopath. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. I, I mean, a very welcome psychopath because, you know, I... Like, somebody who uh, loves Australian cinema, like, there are so many Australian films that just kind of get lost in, in the shuffle of things uh, from the transition from, mm. you know, even from cinema to VHS to DVD. Like, there's a film called A Cold Summer, which came out in, like, 2003, 2004, 
it never got a VHS release, never got a DVD release, and it's not available on streaming or anything. So, you know, <laughs> if you didn't see it in the yeah, cinema, right. then it very well may just not exist at all, um, which is wow. sad. Um, and, you know, mm. I did an interview with Mark Hartley just recently for, uh, you know, the release of Not mm-hmm. Quite Hollywood on DVD, and, and, you know, that was part of the reason why he made that film was that these films kind of just got lost in the shuffle. Um so, you know, maybe mm. that's something, that's the next project for you after after uh, promoting Red Christmas to be like, let's yeah. <laughs> all these lost Wouldn't it be films. good to hang on to them? Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of Aussie slashes I found that you don't get anywhere digitally, which are very interesting and bizarre blends of Aussie masculinity, you know, g'day, mate, how you going, with just awesome Italian 70s Euro slasher stuff, you know, colourful, like Suspiria almost meets... David Williamson's at the club. Wow. <laughs> and they're very confusing and awesome to watch. And, you know, you look them up on IMDb and only six people have rated it. So I think there's a bunch of films out there that don't exist anyway. But that's one of the reasons I've signed with Umbrella for Red Christmas, that they've got 1,500 films on their stuff, but they are going through Australian history and bringing out awesome things. Like Not Quite Hollywood, they're doing a good version of that. But they're also doing a whole bunch of, um, you know, Australian films from the past. I remember when they brought out Dibula, which is like a, an Australian play from the, the mid-70s or early 70s with um, uh, Bruce Spence and a whole bunch of famous people in it. And I've got it on VHS and I, and I love watching it. And then just I thought I would never see that ever again except on that tape. But then Umbrella's been out there finding them and bringing stuff out, which is awesome. Yeah, and that that does kind of answer a question which I was going to ask, which is, you know, it was a conscious, conscious decision to go with Umbrella um, because, you know, one of the things I love about them and, and may sound like a bit of a shill here, but, you know, they are such a great company that I don't mind being that, but, you know, they yeah. they put out these great horror films and great genre films that just kind of got lost to time. Um, you know, like Body mm-hmm. Melt, for example, that had been around for a little <laughs> bit, but... I've yeah. never seen it until they did the re- the remaster of it last year, and I rewatched I watched it for the first time, and I rewatched it the day after because I was like, I, I don't know what the fuck I just watched. <laughs> yeah, that is so good. I mean, even Razorback, which I've got on Rosha Home Video and love. I was down in the Umbrella offices last week, and they were telling me, oh yeah, Razorback currently at the Film and Sound Archives being cleaned up for our release. Mm. That's so exciting. Like, it's such a beautiful movie. Um, apart from being a ridiculous <laughs> pig-based slasher set in the outback, it's also just a really good-looking film. Like, the guy who shot it, uh, famous, I can't remember his name, but he's a real fancy DP, you know? Yeah, it, it is a really stunning film. I watched that uh, last year, and, you know, again, for the first time since I was a kid, and... <laughs> Yeah, it was just something glorious to see. And so, you know, it's great to see that your film is alongside these other films um, because, you know, <laughs> certainly, you know, yes. being part of a, a label per se uh, really does help uh, quite a lot. Um, so were there Yeah, any I think th- so. Sorry, yeah, you go. It's all right. No, no, that's no, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> were there any um, of these VHS films that kind of inspired uh, Red Christmas in some regards? Oh yeah, I think just in the writing, just in the possibilities of what can happen in a story, that's it's good to watch VHS. Um, people often will watch movies purely just because they're new, and that's the only reason they're watching movies. And it's kind of weird. Um, it's not like fashion or clothes that we need to keep. You know, films are stories, and you can learn lots of stuff. So just watching one VHS a day really helped me open up possibilities in storytelling. I think, and then 
there's a great movie called Hello Mary Lou Prom Night Two, um, which which is very colourful and off the charts. And another one I have is Hausu, a Japanese horror film from I think 1985, maybe. And that's that looks really awesome. And the other big <laughs> inspiration wasn't from a VHS, but rather something I saw when I was a boy. And it was, um, I think it's called Pluto's Christmas Tree, a Disney movie, <laughs> like a short Disney film, right. where Chip and Dale, uh, or two chipmunks, are brought in inside a Christmas tree that Mickey Mouse has cut down, and he plugs it in the house and puts lights on it. But because they're little chipmunks, they're running around on different branches. And so the whole second half of my film, once the, the horror starts, it looks like... Um, Suspiria, but what I was basing it on was this Christmas film where every room is a different branch of a Christmas tree and it's got its own little colour. Wow. So wow. every room has a different colour and it just reminded me of this thing when I was a kid, this chipmunk, chipmunks inside the Christmas tree, a really beautiful cartoon from the late 50s, I think. So in that regard, yeah. how, do you, how do you blend uh, insane kills with you know, a, a kids' film like the, the, how, how do you even? Well, like, I, you know, I, I've always. I wondered. mean, my background is comedy, so yeah. you know, I pretty much like it. I think of every kill like a clown routine, as opposed to a modern-day torture porn scenario where the, the influence, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the the thing you look at is the disgusting goreness. I much prefer the idea of, oh, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, and then, bam, it happens really quickly, and then we cut to reactions. And there's also a whole bunch of humour in the first 20 minutes of the film where, you know, it's like a Nora Ephron, Nancy Myers fun family comedy set at Christmas with a whole bunch of people hanging out talking to each other and, you know, have family dramas and stuff going on, and they talk about things and the pressure of Christmas is starting to annoy everyone. You know, that whole thing is there, and then a dude in a cloak rocks up and instead of murdering people, knocks on the door and says, can you join in? And they kind of are polite and he sits at the Christmas tree for 10 minutes and chats to them. So, you know, it's not a traditional slasher film, so to speak. There are very weird comic elements. So once the colourful lights start coming and people start dying, I don't know, I'm just in crazy clown town, basically. <laughs> and it works. It works. It's it's impressive. Um so where to Thank next you. for you? What do you? What do you? What's your next plan? Well, I um, learn a lot in in selling this, and I should tell you that whilst I was making this documentary, uh, this film, a documentary was being filmed about the making, right? And that's going to be on ABC on Halloween night, and then it does the second half of it plays a week later, and um, it's called Horror Movie: A Low Budget Nightmare. And it's made by Gary Gauss, who's an excellent documentary guy. And he filmed me when I went to L.A. for a show called Next Stop Hollywood. Uh, I was in that. And then he also had made an awesome movie back in 2003 called Making Venus, which is about three Sydney-sized producers who try to make a sex comedy. And it doesn't go well. And they mortgage their houses several times. And it just doesn't... I don't think they ever make the film. So he's a very awesome documentary guy. And ABC funded him to make a two one-hour documentary about about the making of, and that's coming out. And basically what I learned in that is, you know, there's obviously a lot of tension in building up to it, and then the shoot itself is quite scary and very low budget, and I've got a huge Hollywood star who turns up, and I have to, you know, put her in a dodgy cabin with spiders in it and hope that she doesn't get angry. And, you know, that's not even... None of that is, like, set up. It's just the unfortunate reality of being, you know, quite poor and shooting out in the bush... And then what happens afterwards is, well, how do you sell this film? And what, you know, 
what is the process of selling? And that's what really stumped me because I'd never done it before and I had no access to people. And things changed. Like in, in the last seven years, I know someone who sold a horror film made in Australia to 500000 because of the DVD market. But because DVDs dropped out, that's not a figure anyone's getting anymore. No one's doing pre-sales or distribution deals where they can make that kind of money. So I was just spent two you know a year being sad and trying to work out this whole industry, this horror industry, which I kind of have a better grasp on now. I learned a lot, which was great. And that leaves me going, okay, maybe I'll try some more horror films <laughs> um, because now I know how you're meant to do them and how you're meant to sell them first and what elements people like. I just got lucky that I had D in it and it is a Christmas film like, and it's kind of well-made enough that people accept it and that netflix accepted it but they were you know they're kind of like strokes of luck they weren't exactly things i planned and now i'm realized well all those things that make it marketable that that people will give you money for you can have them before you start so you don't have to finish the film and then ask do you want to buy it you can ask people before you make it and go i guarantee it'll be good that's not what's important to you what's important is it'll have this famous person it's going to hit this market and this genre and you can tell all that stuff. So pretty much I'm now pitching horror ideas to distributors to try and get funding for another horror movie. Well, fingers crossed it works as well because, you know, it it kind of seems to be the path that a lot of Australian directors do manage to take uh, when they're, they're either making films here in Australia or they're, they're making a step overseas that, you know, the and, and a lot of, uh, you know, great uh, directors, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and all that kind of stuff, made their first film as a horror film so it seems to be a natural progression that you do that and then you move to another another one a bit like uh the spirit brothers who you know made the the fantastic undead and then yeah. now doing the latest film in the the saw series which you know is great wow. to see um so you know fingers crossed these things happen because uh it seems to be something that hopefully uh, you know a lot of Australian directors are able to monopolize on and and make careers uh outside of Australia. Um well yeah, I I agree. I hope so. I think genre allows people to have it gives them permission to try things and to just follow the genre rules but then try new things whereas high quality dramas which Australia keeps funding kind of will either fail or connect with a market who are over 60. Like it's kind of a dumb thing to be keep on funding whereas you, even the guy who made um red hill that awesome mm. neo-western you know with awesome kind of indigenous issues went on to do expendable three was his next film <laughs> you know so i think that it works to have to for for australian directors to do genre stuff because it allows them to experiment and try things and and if you know not fail as hard as if you try to make a high quality drama and no one watches it well, that's it. And, you know, we make some really great drama films, but um, they just don't seem to travel as well internationally, which is really sad because, you know, they're good. Mm. And as much as we give them great reviews and, you know, Australian audiences may go and see them, unfortunately, doesn't translate internationally. But, yeah, for genre films, horror films in particular, and, you know, certainly we do a lot of... Uh, there seems to be a lot of sci-fi stuff that's coming up uh, as well. Um, Iron Sky, yeah. for example... Um, you know, which is they're bizarre, insane kind of films, but they've got an audience that is outside of Australia, which is great to see. Um, yeah. yeah, is that? Do you always want to work in Australia, or do you want to step? Uh, you know, because I we always talk about this in the sense that oh yeah, you know, you'll be able to have that next step to go to America. Um, but <laughs> I think we forget to actually ask the directors and writers and actors if that's actually what they want to do. <laughs> 
I, I am very impartial as to where I live and where I work. For me, it's all about can I make a movie and where can I make it? And that's one thing I learned with in the last year is, well, maybe it's cheaper to make it in this territory or this country with this you know tax tax offset or with this person funding or maybe shooting in Australia, the tax offset's good, but you still got to pay you know, cast too much or crew too much. And so it's all about the project, really. And I'm sort of becoming a producer as well as a director who has to then make those decisions based purely on getting a project made. So I'm all for that as opposed to, you know, needing to go to Hollywood and be famous <laughs> and direct, you know, anything that that's famous. I'm happy to keep telling the stories I, I've got a passion to tell and that means just looking for how I can get them made and where that can happen, basically. Well, definitely. Yeah. Well, I've, I've taken up a heap of your time and I really appreciate it because it's been a great chat oh. about your film and, and your history as well. It's, it's been really interesting. Um, oh, my pleasure, Anne. Thank it, you. Is there any questions that you wish that people would ask you when you're doing these kinds of things <laughs> about your film or about you personally? <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Um, I don't Any questions? Not really. <laughs> no. I, I, no, I mean... The only reason I say that is that I often, at the end of doing these interviews, I'm like, I wonder if they're, you know, they're like, oh, I really wish, you know, that there was this one thing that I could have said about this film uh, that, you know, that I didn't get to say or that they didn't ask. But um, so if you have anything in particular, great. If not, there's no pressure at all. <laughs> you know, one thing I, I haven't been called out enough on in my film is the references to Die Hard. I put two references to Die Hard in the film. Um, one is very subtle, and it's the a woman who's pregnant rubbing her feet on the ground into balls, like the, the advice John McClane gets at the beginning of Die Hard. But the second one is something I thought everyone would be making fun of. There's a 18-year-old art student who's the youngest member of the family, and um, she's you know, a very cool postmodern art type woman who's off to art school. <laughs> but she's wearing a singlet throughout the whole film that says... Um, now I have a marker pen, ho, ho, ho. It's like a reference to the Die Hard pen, uh, gag. Yeah. And I'm surprised that no one ever asks me or points it out or talks about it. I've had one person come up to me and say, I got you two references to Die Hard, which has been great. But that was just a random audience member at the Sydney Film Festival. Apart from that, yeah, it's surprising how many people don't talk about the uh, Die Hard jokes yeah. in the film. No, it slipped you know, my mind, but... But I, I have to say, I, you know, it's really terrible, but I only just watched Die Hard for the first time at the beginning of this year. So, um, oh, man. Yeah, I know. That's it's, awesome. It's, uh, you know, go, going so far in my life without having seen it was uh, pretty terrible, but it's a great film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and now understand why everybody puts it on at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, you know, well-written action film, I think. I think it's a great film. Yeah. But if you haven't seen Die Hard, that's exciting because there might be other things... And I'm, I'm the same when I haven't seen certain films that everyone's seen. And then I find, like, I saw Casablanca last year. I'd never seen that. That blew me away. Yeah. You know, because you always think, oh, it's an old movie and it's going to be boring and people liked it because it was good at the time. But then you watch it and you go, nah, this is like the saddest film I've ever seen. <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah, mean, but, I, I just watched yeah. Gone with the Wind. Uh, we just had a long weekend last weekend. And my mm -hmm. wife and I were like, what are we going to watch? Well, we've never I, I've never watched Gone with the Wind and it's four hours long. So we watched it and... Yeah, it's great stuff. It's a phenomenal film. Oh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. This is, I should watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's long. That's the thing is that I know that people look at the, the running times of these films and they're like, that's four hours of my life. You know, I kind of know what happens. <laughs> Frankly, my dear, yeah. I don't give a damn, you know. But then 
you sit down and you watch it and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, I'm going to watch that too. That's yeah. great. Um, so the Thanks, last question. Andrew. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Uh, there you mm. go. Telling you to go and watch Gone yeah, with the Wind. <laughs> I, I think I have a double VHS cassette version of it. Wow. <laughs> on the video. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the last question, which I ask everybody that comes on, is there a film that you recommend people seek out? There's or an Australian film that you recommend people seek out and see. Oh, that's right. You asked me. Yes, of course. This is a great question. Oh, there are so many. <laughs> It depends how hard you want to seek. If you want a challenge, <laughs> that involves pretty much just calling me and asking to see it. There's a movie called Leonora, which is that weird blend of Ocker and, and um, Giallo, Italian horror film stuff that came out in the late 80s. And it was the only, it was the only, um, the only thing it was on video and no one else has seen it apart from that one video copy. I would recommend that. I'd recommend Danger Freaks which is an excellent documentary, um, part of the 10BA scams. That's like in uh, the Mark Hartley film. Uh, what is what is he called? Next, not Next Stop Hollywood. Not quite Hollywood. Not quite Hollywood. Um, but yeah. Dan- yeah, Danger Freaks is about uh, the very famous Australian stunt guy who worked on all those films and worked on BMX Bandits and worked with that Brian Trenchard-Smith. And I think Tren- Brian Trenchard-Smith directed it as well. And it's a very funny film about this guy and how cool he is grant page is the stunt performance name and how he does all these stunts and how he lives his life on the edge and it's like a very serious but obviously they're doing it to collect the money the 10 ba money and it's just about how cool he is and how cool his life is and he's kind of an inspiration that we had back on double the fist day which was double the fist was the tv show where we act over the top extreme sports cool blokes being cool you know all of that joke of um, men being tougher than they are and this is one of the inspirations to that we saw that on video and went this is the funniest thing <laughs> because you know Grant Page is a stuntman and he is he's an all-rounder who yeah. builds stuff and you know I think at the end of that movie he he um, fire what do you call it when you suspend zip lines between two beaches two cliffs whilst he's on fire <laughs> and it jumps down from you know stops midway and then falls into the ocean hilarious it's yeah. very funny stuff yeah and and to yeah. plug uh umbrella one last time as well that uh one of the most essential discs that they've re- ever released was the man from hong kong disc um which oh yes it, it's got that film on as one of the special features in fact there's about three or four brian trenchard smith films that are special features uh for that film oh that's fantastic oh you got to do that then get yeah. that yeah it's, absolutely it's an yep. essential release it's, it's great stuff and it's a good film and i kind of need to seek out that other film that you recommended as well um because you know usually when i ask this question the the common answer is wake and fright which is great it's a great film <laughs> i absolutely love it yeah but, it's excellent i mean yeah i i would definitely agree that's a film that represents how I feel about growing up as a kid in Australia <laughs> and feeling like I'm going to be somehow molested at the bar and stuff, you know, and just being terrified of men growing up in this country. Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent film to recommend. Yeah. Yeah, but also not quite Hollywood. It's just the essential thing. If you think Australian films are all, you know, Kate Winslet and Hugo Weedon walking around being polite, watch not quite Hollywood because you realise, oh, no, we used to make prop other films. <laughs> we used to make films that everyone else on earth make. So, yeah, I think that's a great documentary as well if you haven't seen that. Definitely. 
Well, look, Craig, I really appreciate your time. It's been it's been long. Uh, it's been fantastic, and you know, once again, I'll highly recommend everybody uh, seek out your film Red Christmas. It's on Umbrella Entertainment in America. It'll be on Netflix in America eventually in around Christmas time as well mm-hmm. as you're saying. Watch the film and. You know, is there is there a place that, that people can contact you on social media as well to say, "Hey, go to hell." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely can. You can go to facebook.com slash Red Christmas and have a have a all complaints should be put there, and I'll uh, read them one day. <laughs> and I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram. Actually, I post all of my um my VHS tapes. I post the covers one a day. And I've been building up quite a collection of VHS covers on there, which is very fun. That's Instagram, uh, Craig Anderson VHS. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> if I'm you not want following to look at you on this, I'm old have to do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Craig. I really cool. appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> no yes. worries. Have a great day. Pleasure. Cheers. You okay. too. Thanks very much. No. Okay, bye. Bye. Christmas in Australia. So... That's Craig Anderson. His film, Red Christmas, is out via Umbrella Entertainment. I'll stick a link in the show notes. Uh, you know, Definitely, if you like horror films, and it's October, uh, it's the month for horror films. So if you're doing Shocktober or something like that, pick up a copy from Umbrella Entertainment and watch it. Uh, and certainly, you know, if you're in America, keep an eye out around Christmas time when it hits Netflix. It's a film to watch and uh, sit down and have those kinds of uh, you know, interesting discussions with your family and friends. Um, it's, it's a really fantastic little film. Uh, the film as well that we uh, were talking about that uh, Dee Wallace had done previously in Australia is Bushfire Moon, which is directed by the other George Miller, uh, who you may know also directed... Uh, Never Ending Story 2, the next chapter, Andre, uh, and a various bunch of other different films there as well. But we're talking about Craig Anderson, and, you know, it's a great discussion that I've had there. Make sure to also hit him up on those social medias as well, uh, Red Christmas on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at AB Film Review, and also head over to our website, abfilmreview.com, to listen to previous episodes. Uh, namely the episode where I interview uh, Mark Hartley about Not Quite Hollywood as well. So, you know, certainly another film that has been released by Umbrella that uh, really uh, highly worthwhile checking out and seeing if you're interested in Australian cinema. Uh, also, if you're interested in film podcasts per se, head over to followingfilms.com where you can listen to other episodes a bit similar to uh, what we've got going on here. Uh, like the following films podcast or Grand Gesture or War Machine vs. War Horse or True Romance. Really, you've got to pick a little litter there. Uh, there's a lot of great shows on that particular network. Uh, also, head over to patreon.com forward slash abfilmreviews. Throw us a dollar here or there. It just helps the show going along. Um, would be fantastic. That's it from me. Keep on watching Australian cinema, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave.